Um, but let me, let me pray and ask God's help as we look at this passage. Um, Father, thank you so much for uh, this season. Thank you that we have this opportunity to, to celebrate Jesus coming to earth. Uh, Lord, I pray that uh, as we've been talking about all month, uh, that that truth would disrupt our hearts, uh, disrupt our lives in a good way. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, <clears throat> the Queen of England died this year. And I know it's kind of a downer to start on, uh, and I won't make any jokes because it, it's still too soon to make jokes about that. But what's fascinating about that was the reaction that people had to her death, uh, especially here in the US. We, Americans were just so totally engrossed with this story of the queen passing away. You know, I don't think we were as bothered back in 2018 when George H.W. Bush died. Some of you are just finding that out now. <laughs> You know, there may have been a couple of days of news coverage, but uh, nothing like uh, when the Queen died. You know, when the Queen died, it was uh, around-the-clock coverage for several weeks on end. And, uh, you know, in some ways that makes sense. She was the UK's longest reigning monarch. You know, she reigned for 70 years. And even though the entire point of our country is that we don't have a sovereign, that, that's the whole reason really why we exist, uh, you know, it was kind of like she's our queen, though, isn't it? You know, she was beloved. Uh, Emmy and I, my wife, we actually lived in, uh, for seven years in the UK, and there were, there were only two things that you were not allowed to talk about. Uh, number one, you could, say, you could never, ever say anything bad about the queen. If you did, you'd be deported immediately because she was a beloved uh, woman. Uh, but number two, and possibly more off limits than the queen, you could never, ever, ever say anything bad about Downton Abbey. <laughs> and I actually, I learned this the hard way. So hate me if you want, uh, but I, I never liked the show. Um, and uh, I was often, uh, we were, in the first five years of living there, I was often subjected to Downton Abbey watch parties that I was usually tricked into. And so people would say, hey, do you want to come over on Sunday evening? We're making a nice roast dinner. It's going to be wonderful. You're going to love it. And I'd say, oh, that sounds wonderful. Yeah, we'll definitely be there. And then after dinner, we would always withdraw to the withdrawing room uh, because that's what you do. And uh, they'd turn on the TV and they tricked me. It was Downton Abbey every single Sunday night. And, uh, you know, I was, you know, every single Sunday night, I'd turn on the TV, and I was really stuck with watching yet another episode of Did Bates Kill Someone? And the answer to that is yes, he did. He always did. Uh, well, the, the show finale on a Christmas episode, actually, this, this time of year. And so, um, you know, in the church that I was preaching in there, my first sermon back after the Christmas break, I said sort of offhanded in my sermon introduction, well, it looks like we all got a wonderful Christmas gift this year. Downton Abbey is finally canceled. I know, I'm in the future too. There were audible gasps, there were shrieks of anger, and I think one lady in the back even passed out. And I had a line of people waiting to speak to me after the sermon uh, that Sunday. Anyway, back to the queen. What was fascinating to watch was not just how people were obsessed with her life, but actually with Charles becoming king. Because to be honest, uh, nobody really wants Charles as king. A lot of the coverage was about how everyone seems to be looking forward to William being crowned as king. You know, even, even this week, the, you know, there's other royals that were obsessed about. This week, a Netflix documentary just dropped about Harry and Meghan. It's almost as if now that they're in America, they're our royals, they belong to us. And why is it that we seem to be so drawn into a desire for a sovereign? You know, not just any sovereign, not just any king or queen or prince or princess, but, but why do we seem to always want a good one? You know, that's why, the, by the way, why people want William and Kate. You know, they're portrayed as the good royals. 
You know, and that's why people love the queen for 70 years. She was the good one. But here's why I think we're so obsessed with the royals, that everyone is looking for a good king, for a good queen, a truly good sovereign to govern their life. And this, by the way, is why most of our fairy tales are once upon a time there was a princess, or there was a prince, or there was a king or a queen. But we can never seem to find a good one. Now, at the same time, we're, you know, we're always hoping for a good sovereign to ascend the throne. We're also realizing as a culture that a truly good sovereign doesn't exist. And so what we've been doing as a culture for maybe the last 30, 40, 50 years is rather than looking to someone else, we've started to look inwards. We've started to look to ourselves as the ultimate ruler and sovereign over our lives. I mean, after all, who knows best what I need than me? Who can give me what I need better than me? Now, the, the philosophers, they call this way of thinking, they call it expressive individualism. And expressive indiv individualism, it can be defined like this. It's the understanding that each one of us has his or her own way of realizing our humanity. And that no one else has the sovereignty or authority to decide who I am or what I do. In other words, a true individual has no sovereign but themselves. They bow the knee to no one. So in a sense, in our individualistic society, we, we have found a king or we found a queen, and that sovereign is me, ourselves. Now, the passage that uh, was just read to us, is, it's also about people searching for a king. Only this one, it's not a fairy tale. You know, like we said last week, but it's worth saying again, that this passage, it's not once upon a time or a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. This one has all the stuff of history. This tale, it's rooted in a real time and real place and real history. And so let's look at this passage in Matthew chapter 2 very briefly, much, much more briefly than we do on a Sunday morning. And we'll do it under three headings, the search, the disturbance, and the worship. So look first at the search. In verse 1, look at, look at this. The, the people on the search, they're called the Magi. Now, we don't have much time to look into who these men were, but suffice it to say that contrary to, to pop, the popular Christmas song, they weren't kings and there probably were significantly more than three of them traveling on this journey. You know, most likely these men were Persians. Uh, they were people uh, from what is uh, modern-day Iran. But their name, it actually has a particular meaning. The word magi, it sounds like a word that you and I use today. It sounds like the word magic. And this is actually where we get that word. Now, when I say that, don't think Magic Castle or David Blaine, uh, but they were magicians. They were something more like uh, spiritual consultants. They, they interpreted dreams and signs. They're, they were astrologers. But here's what we have to, uh, all we really have time to take note of, that they were searching. They were looking. They were looking for a king. And it seems that they had been looking for a really long time. Now, here's what this shows us. It shows us that in the heart of every human being has always been a desire for a good king. And that's what these men are searching for, a good king. And notice just how good the king is that they're searching for. Look at verse 2. It says, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come, notice this, to worship him. They are looking for a king so good that they want to worship him. Which means they don't want to just give their gifts to him. Not, not just their allegiance to him, but actually give their whole hearts to him. 
But this desire of the Magi, that, that's then what leads us to point two, which is the disturbance. Because did you see what happened in the story? The Magi, they walk into Herod's palace. Herod is the, Herod is the, the local king. Uh, and look at the question they ask in verse two. Where is the one born king of the Jews? And then it says in verse three, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. The thing about that question, where is the one born king? That is the last question that Herod wants to be asked. Herod is so obsessed with being king that he has famously murdered two or three of his own sons and his own wife and anyone else who attempted to take his throne. The famous ancient historian Josephus, uh, he said this about King, uh, King Herod. Uh, he said the man's character had nothing human to recommend it. There's nothing human about him. And then Caesar Augustus, actually the man who was emperor at the time, and he also in effect he was Herod's boss, he said, it's safer, get this, it's safer to be Herod's pig than his son. Now why is Herod disturbed? And somebody comes in and says, where's the one born king of the Jews? And so the birth of Jesus, it's a threat to his sovereignty. It's a threat to his throne. Herod isn't looking for a sovereign. Herod is the sovereign. Now, being disturbed, it's often the same response to the expressive individualist. You know, what do you mean there's a king? I'm king. And I think one of the reasons that Christianity has gone out of fashion over the past half century, yes, of course, is because many Christians very wrongfully have treated others badly. But I actually think the main reason Christianity's gone out of fashion is because it requires you to make Jesus your king. And in an era where everyone is their own sovereign, the question, where is the one born king, is disturbing. And think about your own life, who's the king? Who's the sovereign? Especially if you're a Christian, who's, who is really sovereign over your life? And I don't just mean who's pulling the strings, but who are you ultimately obedient to? Who is it that you'll obey at all costs? Is it God or is it your own desires? And the answer to that question tells you who your sovereign is. And by the way, the reason that Christians have treated people badly over the centuries is precisely because rather than being obedient to God... Rather than God being their king who they obey, they were acting as their own sovereign, obeying their own desires rather than God's. Because did, did you know in the story what Herod's desire for his own self-sovereignty leads him to? It, he actually, he orders a genocide. It's down in verse 16. You can read that later. And so there's a desire in every human heart for a good king. And if that desire leads you to Jesus, it often causes you to be disturbed. In other words, to reject Jesus' kingship in favor of your own. But there is a different response. There's another response, and that's our third point, worship. The worship. Notice what happens when the Magi arrive in Bethlehem, verse 10. When they saw the star, in other words, when they found out, when they figured out exactly where Jesus was, when they saw the star, it says they were overjoyed. And I love this. The word there for overjoyed in English is just the one word, overjoyed. But in the original language, it, it works out as something like five words. Very literally, it says in the original language, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now, this joy is in contrast then to the disturbance that Herod responds with. 
Herod's disturbance actually then leads him to violence. But notice what the Magi's re rejoicing exceedingly with great joy leads to, verse 11. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Now, do you get what they're doing? Their desire for a king, it's finally fulfilled, and so they bow down to worship him. Because think about this, what is bowing down but a lowering of the self? It is a physical act of humbling yourself before someone who is greater than you. In other words, it's actually a way of exalting the person that you're bowing down to. It's, it's lifting them up above you. Think about it this way. If you're bowing down, then self-exaltation is not possible. Put it this way. If you're a person who bows down to someone greater than you, then you cannot be an expressive individualist. The individualist says, there is no sovereign but me. But the worshiper says to the one they're worshiping, you are my sovereign, my king. And this is what it is to be a Christian. It's to make Jesus your king. It's to see in him that he is the good sovereign that your heart has been searching for your entire life. Now, how do we know that he is good? How do we know that he's that good sovereign? that we can bow down to him and not be destroyed by him. We'll look at the contrast between King Herod and King Jesus, and, and this contrast becomes exceptionally clear when you look at the gifts that the Magi brought to Jesus. In verse 12, it says they brought gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, why these three gifts? Why these, you know, there's all kinds of things they could have brought. Why these three? Well, each of them has a particular use in the ancient world. And so gold is actually, it's the medal of royalty. That, that was, that was a, a gift for a king. And so with this gift, they're saying Jesus is the true king. The frankincense, it's, it's a spice that was used in the ancient world for worship. And so with this gift, they're saying Jesus is not only king, but, but he's worthy of worship. And then myrrh, this is the most interesting one. It was used in the ancient world for embalming. They would cover their dead with it when they laid him laid them in the grave. And so with this gift, they were actually saying that this king who is to be worshipped will die. And this is where we see the major contrast, that Jesus would not be known for killing, he'd be known for dying. Herod was known for his violence. He was known throughout the ancient world. Even the emperor knew of his violence. He was known for killing others to stay on his throne, but Jesus would be known for giving up his throne, giving up his right to rule. Herod would cause hundreds, maybe thousands to die for him. But Jesus Christ would die once for all mankind. And this is why we can make him our sovereign. This is why we can worship him, why we can bow down to him. And so every single human heart is longing for a good king. And the birth of Jesus Christ at Christmas is the announcement that that good king has come and he has died for you and for me to save us from ourselves. The angel said it to Joseph back in Matthew chapter 1. The angel said, she will give birth to a son 
and you are to give him the name Jesus. That name, by the way, means Savior. You are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Listen, Jesus is the good king that we've been looking for. And if you can bow the knee to him, then he will save you from your sins. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, along with the Magi who, who bowed down to worship you, we, we join them today. We exalt you. We worship you. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.